0: Good afternoon. It is certainly a blessing that God has given us opportunities such as this to come together as his family, uh, to be built up by studying his word together, to to praise him in song, to come to his table uh, and remember the sacrifice that he has given on our behalf. If your Bibles aren't already open to Ephesians chapter 4, I ask that you'll turn them there now. We're going to be focusing in particular on the last verse that Christopher read for us at Ephesians 4. And in verse 29, in the context of the book of Ephesians here, Ephesians really divides out uh, well into two main sections, chapter 1 through 3 and chapters 4 through 6. Chapters 1 through 3 talk about our riches in Christ. And starting in chapter 4, we begin talking about our responsibilities in Christ. 1 through 3 talks about the the blessings of the call of the gospel. And then as he begins chapter 4, he talks about walking worthy of our calling. If we understand the great riches that we've received in Christ, then what should that mean in our lives? So starting in chapter 4, he begins talking about walking in unity. And then he starts talking about walking in newness of life, starting uh, around verse 17 here, where he talks about putting off their old way of life, no longer walking as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. And he uses an illustration of putting off the old man and putting on the new man. And as he further defines what this should look like, he describes there in verse 25 how this should characterize a speaking truth. Verse 26, uh, controlling uh, our anger and not lashing out. Um, In verse 28, about how rather than taking advantage of other people, we should be working diligently and generous and giving to others. But in verse 29, he talks about how this transformation of putting off the old man and putting on the new man should affect our speech in particular. And that's what I want us to consider today, is building one another up with our words. Uh, two weeks ago, we had talked about guarding the gates of our eyes and our ears, guarding our hearts, ultimately, and being careful about what it is that we're allowing to, to come in and dwell within our hearts. But I want us to talk today about guarding the gates of our mouth. Um, not only do we need to guard what's coming in, what we're allowing to dwell within us, but in an extension of that, we also need to guard what we're allowing to come out of the gates of our mouths. And Paul is going to give us four criteria here that will help us as we consider what it is that we uh, allow to cross the threshold of our lips. First of all, he says here in Ephesians 4 and verse 29, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, or the New American Standard says, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. First, we need to make sure that the words that we are speaking are what we might call healthy words. Uh, the, the word here translated unwholesome or corrupting is a word that means rotten, putrid, uh, no longer fit for use, worn out, of poor quality, bad, worthless, Thayer says. When you think about this idea of unwholesome or corrupting talk, I, I think we need to get kind of a, a picture of, in our minds of what that might look like. And if you think of rotten and putrid, here I have a picture of a rotting apple. Um, And to to me, when I think about this idea of corrupting or or unwholesome speech, we're talking about that which is rotting and and not uh, fit for consumption, those words that are contrary to spiritual health and promote rather moral corruption. And if we look here in the book of Ephesians, later on in chapter 5, he goes on to define a little bit further what some of these unwholesome or corrupting talks might be. He says in Ephesians 5 and verse 4, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, no crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. There are no filthiness, no foolish or silly talk, no crude joking or coarse jesting. Uh, The idea of filthiness is obscenity, all that is contrary to purity. Vine says things that are vulgar or disgraceful. Uh, Silly talk really comes from a Greek word, which is where we get our word moron. Um, And really, it's the speech of the fool. If you want to go back to the book of Proverbs, and see everything that's said about the tongue of the fool. That's what we're talking about here. Foolish talk or coarse jesting, uh, crude joking, rude or offensive humor, making light of that which uh, should be approached with reverence and sobriety. What what words would fall into this category of unwholesome or corrupting speech? Well, I, I'm clearly not going to put a list of uh, profane words up on the TV today to let you know what, what all words you shouldn't be, be saying, but, but hopefully we can talk about some principles that will help us differentiate between what is wholesome uh, and what is profane or obscene. Certain words are not obscene at all when used in the right context, though. And I think a great deal of what qualifies something as profane or obscene is is the way in which we say it. For for instance, Aaron and I, a long time ago, used to have a TV guardian, uh, a little black box that would read the closed captioning on movies or on TV. And if a bad word came up, it would mute out the television for a second. And it would come up with some replacement uh, word Uh, in the closed captioning below. But there were times that we would be watching, and there was one time uh, that uh, a rooster crowed uh, on the the television, and so the closed captioning said cock-a-doodle-doo, and it muted out and it came up and it said Uh, (laughs) jerk-a-doodle-doo. Obviously here we we recognize that the TV Guardian can't differentiate the context in which things are used. we recognize that there are words that within themselves have a proper context, have a proper use. Uh, And in fact, most words have a proper context, and yet you add a what the, or a uh, oh my before it, and suddenly it becomes profane. Why is that? Well, you know, one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 20 and verse 7, tells us you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Is God's name a curse word? Not in the proper context. Certainly not. We should be speaking the name of the Lord at all times. Uh, Many times we're going to talk about God today as as we go through his word. However, it's the way in which we use it. It's the attitude and mindset behind it. Because if we become flippant in our use of God's name, and don't treat it with the reverence and the seriousness that it deserves. That becomes corrupt and profane and unwholesome speech. Jesus, in, in the uh, model prayers, says, hallowed be your name. And the very idea of profanity, the idea of something being profane, is to treat something holy or sacred with great disrespect, abuse, or irreverence. In Leviticus chapter 22 and verse 32, The Lord says to his people, you shall not profane my holy name, but I will be sanctified among the sons of Israel. What is he saying? He's saying this needs to be treated as holy. You need to treat it with the reverence that it deserves. Do not make it profane. In Leviticus 22 and verse 2, he tells the sons of Aaron, he says, tell Aaron and his sons to be careful with the holy gifts of the sons of Israel, which they dedicate to me, so as not to profane my holy name. What 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 is the core meaning of profane or profanity? It's taking something holy, something that's supposed to be setting apart, and dragging it through the mud, treating it flippantly or irreverently. Uh, And most curse words are ultimately taking something that is supposed to be viewed as holy or serious or sacred or private and treating it very flippantly, uh, treating it as something commonplace. In fact, most curse words come from a derivative of something either religious in nature or sexual in nature. Because certainly we understand religious things, God, his name, hell, somebody being damned to hell, those are serious things, those are things that we should not be taking white. And certainly, the sexual relationship is something that God intended for us to see as holy and sacred and special as well. And so, the root idea of unhealthy, corrupt, unwholesome words is taking something special and treating it as commonplace. And in fact, we can do that even without actually using a curse word. Sometimes just in the way that we talk about things, we may be uh, guilty of unwholesome speech because we're talking about something that's intended to be seen as holy and reverent and special, uh, and yet treating it as commonplace. So as we let words out of the gate of our mouth, let's make sure that they are healthy words, that help us have a healthy spiritual mindset towards things that are holy and sacred, um, that God desires for us to view with reverence. But back here in Ephesians 4 and in verse 29 we also see that they need to be edifying words, or words that build up, uh, he says, but only such a word that is good for building up, or good for edification. Brethren, it's not enough to talk about what our speech shouldn't be, we also need to talk about what our speech should be. And he says that we need to actively be speaking, to, seeking to speak things that are spiritually encouraging, exhorting, uplifting to those around us. If it doesn't help somebody, then it's probably not worth saying. (laughs) We need to make sure that the words that we choose, the things that we talk about, are aimed constantly at enriching others' spiritual well-being, at building people up. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, towards the end of Paul's second letter uh, here to the church in Corinth, He says in chapter 13 and verse 10, For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Now, Paul had to say some things uh, in his letters to the church in Corinth that uh, involved rebuke and correction, some things that might be very difficult to hear that might have have, have hurt. And yet Paul's making it very clear that his intention, both when he is writing from afar and when he comes there in person, his goal, what God has entrusted him to do is to build them up, not to tear them And so everything that he says, whether it be easy to hear or hard to hear, is aimed at that ultimate goal of building them up. Is that our goal and our purpose when we speak? Are we consciously thinking about that in the words that we choose and the things that we say? And certainly this doesn't mean that there isn't a place for criticism and critique and correction. But we need to be very careful that that is genuinely constructive criticism. That it's not just me wanting to to vent my frustration or me wanting to get something off my chest, but that it's genuinely aimed at building others up. In fact, earlier in this book of 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn to chapter 7, you see here what Paul says about some of the rebukes that he had given to them. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, we'll start reading in verse 8. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repentance. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. Paul had to say some pretty hard things, some things that brought grief to their hearts, that hurt to hear. But he didn't regret it because of what it produced within him. His words ultimately were not aimed at grieving them, were not aimed at tearing them down. His words were aimed at motivating them to make the necessary changes, to repent. A repentance, he says, that leads to salvation. Uh, and so we need to make sure that whatever we say, even in correction, even in rebuke, is consciously, and intentionally focus on building others up. Um, I know it's very easy to have a tendency to to be quick to criticize, and yet very slow to come in. We we need to train ourselves to be very slow to criticize. There's going to be times where it's necessary. but let's make sure that it's necessary. Let's make sure that that's not just me getting something off my chest. In fact, look later on here in chapter 7, at the very end of this chapter in verse 16. Notice what he then says to the Corinthians. He says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. Paul didn't just focus on correcting them. He also made a very intentional effort to build them up and encourage them. And in fact, if you look through all of Paul's letters, time and time and time again, we see him talking about the confidence that he has in him, that they will hear this, that they will change. Uh, we see the same uh, thing in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews 6, and verse 9, after a very intense rebuke that has been given. says, but we are confident of better things concerning you, brethren. We need to make sure that we are also quick to say things that, that will commend and encourage and build others up. Romans 12, and verse 10, the ESV says, outdo one another in showing honor." to give preference to one another in showing honor. It can take several encouraging words to repair the damage done by one critical and unkind word. We need to be looking for opportunities to compliment and encourage others to build them up, to motivate them uh, in their spiritual growth. And I think this is especially uh, applicable and necessary in areas where we may differ and areas where we may have different perspectives. Um, Turn with me to Romans chapter 14. In Romans 14, we see Paul addressing some areas where where people had very different convictions on things, specifically as it applied to to what extent they needed to follow some of the, the food laws or festivals of the Old Covenant. But read with me, and we'll actually start in verse 13 here. And Romans 14, starting in verse 13, says, Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Here in context, these are not issues of objective right and wrong Uh, of something being biblical and something being unbiblical. These are issues of of personal conscience and conviction. What does he say that they they need to do in this case? Well, notice the conclusion there in verse 19, kind of the the central passage of this chapter. He says, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding." Don't don't use these differences in perspective or conviction as an opportunity to to tear one another down. It's very easy when I have a certain conviction and perspective on how something needs to be handled or how something needs to be viewed uh, to then let that be the standard, and if somebody isn't meeting my standard, to, to beat them down because of it. But that's not the attitude here. They're not to despise one another. They're not to judge one another, but they're to focus on what they can do To build each other up. And it's not that there weren't biblical principles that applied to this issue either. In fact, Paul says there in verse 14, I know I'm persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But he recognizes there are people in their spiritual growth who he calls weak in this passage who are at a point where in their conscience and in their conviction, they feel like this is, is how they need to handle the situation. Um, I I think we need to think about this as it applies to a great deal of things that that we're struggling with, as we think about standards uh, of uh, COVID restrictions and how we need to handle that, as we think about parenting styles and how different people will handle situations, as we think about politics in our nation, issues that have biblical principles that apply to them that we need to be thinking about, but each of us may struggle in how to, to, to handle that. What are we going to do in that situation? It's very easy to say, well, uh, you know, I, I don't let my children do Z. Uh, you know, or this is how I'm handling the COVID situation. Well, we need to recognize that, that we're not the standard, right? And it's not that we can't say things that, can be suggestions or advice and helpful to other people as they work through those things, but we need to make sure that we're doing what verse 19 says. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. We're focusing on, however, each of us is struggling to work through the situation, on, on building each other up, not using my own personal convictions as a means to tear somebody else down. Right? Later on in Romans 15, verse 1 and 2. He continues, really, the same idea. Romans 15, starting verse 1, he says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. You know, others' weaknesses and strengths may differ than mine. Others' convictions may differ than mine. And I need to encourage them where they're at. And not criticize them just because I feel like, well, you know, you're not meeting my standard of, of how this needs to be handled or how this needs to be viewed. And so we need to focus, uh, especially in areas that that we might tend to uh, disagree on how something needs to be handled, to focus on what we can do, to focus on building each other up. Um, that making sure that our words are not an unnecessary despising or unnecessary critical attitude towards one another, but that even in those areas we are focused on peace and on what we can do to encourage and build up uh, even somebody that we may view as, as, as weak in a certain area, uh, whether that be parenting, whether that be uh, COVID, whether that be any variety of other things, whether it be meat, um, that we're focusing on what can we do to encourage and to build. And along with that, if we go back to Ephesians chapter 4. He says, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion. Or the New American Standard says, according to the need of the moment. Um, Some versions say, uh, good for necessary or needful edification. What is needed to encourage and build up may differ from person to person and situation to situation. And so in order to effectively build up, we need to evaluate what words the moment calls for. Uh, And I'll be honest, I I think this is an area that I I feel like I fail in time and time and time again. I want to encourage and uplift, but I often don't always know how. I don't know what needs to be said or how it needs to be said in certain situations. But the Bible tells us that there is a time or a season for everything. If you look back in Ecclesiastes chapter three, Ecclesiastes chapter three, it, it shows us uh, that that at different times there are different needs. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, starting in verse 1, says for everything there is a season and a time for every matter under the heaven, Um, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. You know, uh, sometimes there there might be a need, as Paul did, coming in uh, to first rebuke and Uh, correct the Corinthians before he could then build them up. Uh, There's a time where Jesus is sitting with his disciples, teaching on the hillside, and there's also a time when he's coming in, turning over tables. Uh, Sometimes the needs are different. Says in verse 4, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. We need to weep with those who weep and uh, rejoice with those who rejoice. There's going to be different needs, different things that need to be said depending on the situation. Verse 5, he says, a time to cast away stones, a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. Um, perhaps our current situation is a time to refrain from embracing. I think uh, the, the point being made here was not necessarily primarily about sickness, I don't know, but... Um, but as well, you know, there is a time where we might need to withdraw from a brother who is actively involved in sin. Uh, and we, we may need to refrain from, from uh, spending social time with him. Uh, and we look forward to a time that he can be restored and that we can come and, and embrace him back into the, the flock. It says in verse 6, a time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. Uh, You think about Job's friends there. Uh, The best thing that they did was sit with him in silence. Uh, And it was not a time to speak for them. At least certainly not the the things that they said were not uh, needful in the moment. Um, And in verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Uh, We need to love the sinner and yet hate the sin, uh, to show tolerance and forbearance for the weak, but also to fight diligently against the uh, corrupting influence of false teaching. Uh, And so we need to make sure as we think about what we are speaking of, being aware of what this situation is, and what the needs are, in this situation, Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 11 says, Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Um, BSV says, A word fitly spoken. Uh, and the, the Hebrew phrase there is literally a word spoken on its wheels. Now that may be kind of hard for us to. to Visualize, But I think the idea is that it rolls in smoothly with, with no harsh edges or corners to cause friction or hinder the message. Uh, a word spoken in the right way at the right time as to do the most effective good. Uh, and he calls that apples of gold and settings of silver. In contrast to that, Proverbs chapter 25 and verse 20 says, Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day or like vinegar on soda is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. Words not fitly spoken. So how is it that we learn to say the right thing at the right time? Uh, I think there's two things that we can think about here. First of all, if we're going to say the right thing, we need to be going to God's Word. (laughs) We recognize that we don't have the wisdom and the insight on our own to know what needs to be said. If we're going to say the right thing, we need to be making sure that we're speaking as the oracles of God, 1 Peter 4 and verse 11. Uh, that we are looking to God's wisdom in what we say. But if we're going to speak the right thing at the right time, we need to understand the needs and the feelings of the one that we're talking to. That means we need to put ourselves in their shoes. We need not to rush into a situation thinking that we know exactly what needs to be said without taking time to listen and understand what somebody is going through and what they're facing and what they're struggling with. And so we want to speak right things at the right time, speak appropriate words. We need to, in love and compassion, understand where somebody is at, and seek to do that by listening. Um, and so we need to speak words that build up. We need to speak the right words in the right way at the right time. Uh, but if we go back to Ephesians chapter 4, we also see that we need to speak with grace. Ephesians 4 and verse 29 says, But only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. What does that mean, to give grace to those who hear? The, the word grace, many times we, we define as unmerited or unearned favor, really is the idea of a gift, right? And what he's saying is that my words need to be a well-thought-out gift to those to whom I speak them. What does that look like? You know, if if you want to give a good gift, you you need to think about what would be most appreciated, uh, most useful to the one that you're giving it. Uh, I'm not going to buy Erin a circular saw for Christmas because she wouldn't appreciate that, right? I need to think and spend some time thinking about what she might appreciate most. What might be most helpful to her. And so as we speak, if we're going to seek to give grace for our words to be a gift, we need to spend some time thinking about what would be most useful, most helpful, spiritually speaking, to the people that we are interacting with. Colossians chapter 4 and verse 6, we talked about this a little bit last week, as we talked about sharing the gospel with others. But it says here in Colossians 4 and verse 6, Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Sometimes we're going to have to say some things that are going to be hard to hear. We might, in love, have to rebuke somebody and, and say some things that are very difficult to swallow. Well, how do we do that? Does we season that speech with grace. Why, why is it that you put salt on your food? Or do you put some seasoning on your food. It's, it's to uh, enhance the flavor, to make it more palatable. Maybe you've had the experience of... of being said, uh, have a, a dish set before you that was rather hard to choke down, uh, maybe you, you get some, some salt or, or uh, in our case, some sour cream, uh, and, and put that on there, make it a little bit easier, to more palatable to swallow. Well, there are going to be some times that we're going to have to say some things that are going to be very, very hard for people to accept and swallow. How are we going to do that? We're going to pour on the grace. We're going to make sure in the way that we say that that we're saying it with as much love and compassion and understanding and humility and gentleness as as possible. If you need to give a rebuke or some needed criticism, uh, criticism, shower it with grace. You and your spouse have some disagreement. Shower your speech with grace. You need to have a difficult conversation with your children. Shower your speech with grace. You know, Paul often, in his letters, uh, commended the brethren, thanked God for the brethren, many times at the beginning of his letters, before he got into some of the correction uh, and rebuke that he needed to address. Paul was was very intentional about building up the brethren and encouraging them and saying things that would make it easier for them to accept. Uh, Some of the the correction and instruction that he had to give. And so this involves showering our speech with gentleness, humility, sincerity, and love. Things that make our speech easier to swallow. In Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 1, we read, A gentle or a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Uh, When when we were younger in our... uh, Elementary age Bible classes growing up. My mother put together uh, Bible verses uh, by the ABCs. And for every letter of the alphabet, we had a different memory verse to remember. I, I, I don't know that I could get very far in those ABCs today, but I do remember what A was. It was Proverbs 15, verse 1. A soft answer turns away wrath. Uh, I think it's appropriate that that's at the beginning of our (laughs) ABC's Bible verses, uh, because it's extremely important when we think about our communication with other people. Uh, It's not just about what you say and when you say it. It is about how you say it as well. James tells us that the tongue is the hardest part of the body to control in James chapter 3. It says it's a world of iniquity set on fire by hell. But we are urged to have a bridle on our tongues. We must guard the gates of our mouth and be very careful about what words we allow to come out. And so here in Ephesians chapter 4, I think Paul gives us some helpful criteria to think about as we open our mouths in communicating with, with one another, people in the world around us. Are our words spiritually healthy? Or are they profane and corrupt? Are our words more likely to help build up, or are they more likely to tear somebody down? Are these words that are most needful and appropriate to the situation? Are these words harsh, or are they gracious and easy to swallow? Brother, if you recognize that these do not describe your words, and you need to publicly confess before the brethren here, to ask for the prayers of the brethren. Uh, we will be glad to, to pray together with you today. We're, we all are growing. We're all struggling um, to be who God wants us to be, and we want to help one another in that walk. If there's any way that we can help you today in your spiritual walk, that's why we're here. But we'll all we'll also say that trying to sanctify and renew our mouth is not going to work unless we have first allowed God to cleanse our heart. And if you have not put off the old self and allowed Christ to put on the new self, you haven't buried the old man of sin in baptism, we want to give you that opportunity today. Uh, will you surrender your life fully to him? If there's any way that we can help you uh, to be who God wants you to be, surrender your life to him, to, to come back to him, uh, that's why we're here. If you're subject to the Lord's invitation in any way, won't you please make it known at this time as we stand and sing together.